Hi, and welcome to this episode of Shotguns and Sugar, where we take a look at the history you don't always learn about in school. I'm Charles McCloskey, and in this episode, one of a series on the American Civil War on the world stage, I'm going to discuss the world's interest in post-Civil War reconstruction. Like my other podcasts in this series, this one is based on lectures I've put together for college classes I've taught in both United States and world history. A more comprehensive list of sources on this subject is available, along with a complete reference list for this podcast, on the Shotguns and Sugar website, shotgunsandsugar.com. In February of 1866, just about 11 months after Lee's surrender, George Dixon resigned his post as the superintendent of the North England Agricultural School, located in Great Ayton in Yorkshire, England, a position he had filled for a quarter of a century. Before and during the Civil War, Dixon had been an avid supporter of the British anti-slavery movement's involvement in the American abolitionist movement. In fact, he resigned his superintendency to go to the United States to establish schools to help former slaves get on their feet. He remained in the United States for about five years, managing the affairs of the Freedmen's Aid Society, a fund that British Quakers established and maintained during much of Reconstruction. While in the States, he is said to have helped Harriet Beecher Stowe, the same who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, find ways to improve her Freedmen's School in Florida. Another reports that he was the first superintendent of a Freedmen's School in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and that he later worked as a professor of agriculture at the University of North Carolina. Dixon's story is representative of the efforts of faith-based organizations to help the former slaves, known after the war as Freedmen, to adjust to a life of freedom. Two other threads of Freedmen's support came through independent voluntary efforts and through the Freedmen's Bureau. Officially titled the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, the Freedmen's Bureau was an arm of the federal government. It was formally established on March 3, 1865, when President Abraham Lincoln signed a bill officially titled An Act to Establish a Bureau for the Relief of Freedmen and Refugees. In a sense, the Freedmen's Bureau was the culmination of years of efforts to support the former slaves. In 1861, just months after the Confederates fired on Fort Sumter, two escaped slaves sought protection from General Benjamin Butler, the commander of Fort Monroe, located in Confederate Virginia. He justified his decision to protect them by defining fugitive slaves as contraband of war. From that point on, slaves who escaped to the Union lines were sent to contraband camps. Initially, military officers supervised these camps and provided shelter and food to its re their residents. Often, local military detachments would hire camp residents to help build earthworks and fill support roles. These camps were the roots of the Freedmen's Bureau. The Bureau was originally designed to last only a year, but its role was expanded and extended indefinitely in 1866. The Bureau provided freedmen with help finding employment, acquiring lands, participating in the political process, distributing foods, and establishing schools. That last item is probably what they're best known for. British interest in Reconstruction sought to provide many of the same services independent of government involvement. As Dixon's experience illustrates, these efforts were an outgrowth of the anti-slavery movement that had helped support abolitionist efforts before and during the war. Another of these Freedmen Aid Societies was the National Union. Membership in this organization came almost exclusively from members of the British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society. The National Union and the British Foreign Anti-Slavery Society 
operated independently of each other, but coexisted. Like Dixon's Quaker-based society and the more egalitarian National Union, these societies had five goals in mind. First, to relieve physical suffering, especially for the freedmen. Second, to provide basic education, followed by third, industrial training. Christian conversion proceeded from these three goals. And finally, by assisting in these efforts, they hoped to improve British-American relations, relations which British support for the Confederacy during the Civil War had damaged. Outside of Britain, Reconstruction itself was a relatively minor point to Europe. However, the end of the war did send ripples of change throughout Europe, South America, and the Caribbean. Since 1776, Naysayer had prophesied the demise of America's great experiment, the concept of the citizen as the sovereign. As I discussed in my podcast on nationalism in the Civil War, the idea of the citizens having the collective knowledge, intelligence, and wisdom to maintain a nation without a king or dictator was unthinkable to European intellectuals of the day. Southern secession had energized these naysayers who believed that a Union defeat would prove the ultimate necessity of a strong central leader. Throughout the Civil War, effort in Europe to increase popular influence in national politics, known as republicanism, had waned throughout the continent. However, Lee's surrender at Appomattox Courthouse changed all that. No longer was the United States simply a great experiment in republicanism. The experiment was over. Democracy had proved its resilience. Emboldened by the complete and utter victory of the North, proponents of republicanism throughout Europe talked of a democratic Europe as monarchs pulled back from advances toward colonialism throughout the Americas. The Italians called for the United States to conspire with supporters of republicanism throughout Europe to support their efforts to build democracies on the continent. Spain dropped its efforts to restore colonial control over Santo Domingo, Peru, and Chile, and in 1868 experienced their own glorious revolution, which brought about the short-lived First Spanish Republic. Britain, concerned that its remaining North American colonies might catch the Republican bug from their southern neighbors, united them into the Dominion of Canada. Brazil, one of the last bastions of slavery and monarchy in the Americas, had been able to use the American South as a shield against the European abolitionists until the end of the Civil War. But in 1871, international opinion pressured Emperor Dom Pedro II to decree that all children born to slave women were born free. But it was not until 1888, 11 years after Reconstruction ended, that Brazil outlawed involuntary servitude. The next year, a military coup brought the Brazilian Empire to an end, but it was probably the impact of the Civil War on France that had the most direct effect on the United States. Steve Salode, a French historian who has studied and written extensively about the relationship between France and the United States, argues compellingly of the country's interest in the Civil War. Jessica Edwards translated his work into English. Her version is titled France and the American Civil War, A Diplomatic History. For the French, their officially neutral stance was a troubled one. In the 1770s, France was the first country to recognize the United States as a sovereign nation. And French support during the American Revolution went well beyond lip service. They played a pivotal role on the ground, so to speak, in the personal involvement of Lafayette as an advisor to Washington, in the two French armies that fought alongside the Americans, one led by Count Rochambeau, which focused its efforts up and around New York and the New England states, 
and another by the Marquis de Lafayette in the south. Furthermore, it was the French fleet's defeat of the British in the Battle of the Chesapeake that shut the door on Cornwallis in the decisive victory of the fledgling republic at Yorktown. By 1860, French paternalism suggested the need to help hold the United States together, not permit it to tear itself apart. On the other hand, in the 80 years or so since French recognition of the new republic, the French had gone through its own set of revolutions, first against Louis and Marie, then against its own form of republicanism as Napoleon Bonaparte created the first French empire, a nation that was dismantled by the other European nations in 1814, re-establishing the French Republic. In 1852, the nation saw the rise of the second French empire when President Charles-Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte, nephew of the one defeated at Waterloo, executed a coup d'etat and crowned himself Napoleon III. Napoleon III was concerned about the Americas. In fact, he was one of the few European leaders to have actually visited the United States. In 1837, he spent about 10 weeks in New York, where he met some of the nation's leading families. After he returned to France, he read American newspapers and followed a number of congressional debates to keep up with North American society and politics. As emperor, he was most concerned about three elements of American society and politics. First was the Monroe Doctrine. Why, from his position, did anyone have the right to dictate whose affairs he could meddle in? His second concern was the religious flavor of American society. Although our Constitution guarantees religious freedom to all, our actions and attitudes towards those who are not Protestant, particularly Catholics, raised grave concerns in his mind about our ability to spread Protestantism throughout the Americas, if not the rest of the world. Closely related to his concern about Protestantism, his third concern had to do with manifest destiny. He was convinced that the Mexican-American War was not the end of the American goal of overspreading the continent, but that eventually the nation planned to extend its control through Mexico to Central and South America. He also credited the evangelism so common in the nation's Protestant leanings as the source of America's expansionist policies. In response to these concerns, Napoleon III adopted what he called his grand design as his foreign policy towards the Americas. It involved creating a bloc of Latin American countries that, under French leadership, supported Catholicism to counter what he viewed as the Protestant-based Anglo-Saxon culture of the United States. Such a bloc would be directed by a French-supported Mexican government controlled in its early years by the brother of the Austrian emperor, Maximilian. Although unofficial players in Napoleon III's plan, the Confederacy, should they win, would act as a buffer between his Latin bloc of countries and the stronger Republican government in the North. Obviously, his plan required a victorious Confederacy. In fact, Napoleon III sought to officially recognize the Confederacy twice, once in 1862 and another a year later. Such recognition may well have brought the Civil War to an end. But in each instance, his foreign ministers talked him out of it. They recognized the weaker military position of the South and were concerned about long-term damage to the French-United States relations should the Confederacy fail to win the war. They were also concerned that a divided United States would strengthen British power internationally, an event which, to the French, was as abhorrent as a bottle of sour wine. The Union victory destroyed Napoleon's plans. Post-war pressure from General Grant and Sherman 
not to mention Secretary of State Seward, forced France to withdraw from Mexico. Although warned that maintaining his throne was impossible without the French army to prop him up, Maximilian stayed and, on June 18, 1867, was executed by Mexican Republicans under the command of Benito Juarez. His death brought an end to the great empire, along with Napoleon's grand design. During this uproar, sometime in the early summer of 1865, a group of Frenchmen gathered in the home of Edward Laboulay, a staunch supporter of the American abolitionists. So well known and popular was he in both France and North America that in 1864, as the vote for Lincoln's second election approached, Laboulay sought to swing the vote towards the president when he warned the voters of America if the Union failed, night would come upon Europe, and we shall see the work of Washington, of the Franklins, of the Hamiltons, spit upon and trampled underfoot by the whole school which believes only in violence and success. Not quite a year later, on this early summer day in 1865, Laboulay and his friends began to discuss the idea of a monument that would express a lasting friendship between the two countries, France and the United States. Their discussion eventually resulted in the creation of a colossus, a giant allegorical figure holding the light of liberty to the world, not a light of flame and war, but a candle of enlightenment, welcoming all who entered the nation's busiest port to the wonderful land of liberty. It would be another 21 years before their vision was completed and is now known, of course, as the Statue of Liberty. Stories like this illustrate the influence of the American Civil War on the world. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this issue of Shotguns and Sugar, where we talk about elements of the past that you don't often hear about in the traditional classroom. For more information on this and other subjects addressed on this channel, check out our website, shotgunsandsugar.com, and tune into future podcasts about the wonders of history.